1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be looking at a kind of a big chunk here. It's about 24, 23 verses that we're going to look at. Um, we're not going to be able to spend a lot of time on any one of those verses, as you can understand. But we're going to try to look at that whole uh, section, starting in verse 12 and going down to verse 34. Uh, we're going to read it. We're going to take a minute to read it together just to pay attention to it because you're not going to get a cleaner take on the Word of God than the Word of God itself. So we're going to take a minute to read that. That said, one of the things I want you to know about this before you go into it, Paul has been, he's the writer of 1 Corinthians, he's been talking to this church at Corinth. There's a church in Corinth that he's addressing. He's been doing that for, well, 14 chapters. And he's addressing a lot of division, a lot of sin, a lot of problems in this church. And if you go all the way, I'm not going to make you go there, but if you want to make a note of this, in chapter 1, verse 10, he really has what, he would, what I would consider the purpose verse of that whole book, which is that they have unity in Christ, that they see that their problems, as many, as, as many and as big as those problems may be, their unity, their purpose really is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he goes through and explains and kind of goes through a bunch of those different problems throughout the whole book. But now he gets to the, one of the biggest problems is a misunderstanding of really who Christ is and what he does for them and what he means for them. And it seems in this church, and you may say, well, I don't know why in the world they think that. I don't know why they would either. But it seems in this church that they didn't quite understand, didn't quite believe that Jesus bodily res resurrected from the dead. There was a concern about that. So what Paul's going to do, and he does throughout really all of chapter 15, it's a very much a direct defense of the resurrection. But starting in verse 12, there's three movements, and we're going to talk about each of those three movements. We're going to read it, but I want you to pay attention to these three movements if you don't mind. There's three movements. The first one is starts in verse 12, goes down uh, to about verse 19, and it's a what I'll call a negative movement. He's saying, if the resurrection is not true, this is what's going to happen. Then the second movement you'll start seeing in verse 20, and it goes down uh, to about verse 28. And that's saying, well, because it's true, these things are true. And then the third movement begins in 29, going down to verse 34, and he says, once again, a negative movement. If these things are not true, this is what's going to happen. So he's telling us in lots of different ways, looking at the resurrection, if it's not true or if it is true, there are some implications. Are you with me on that? At least a head nod or something. Come on, y'all with me? All right, we got it. Okay, that's what we're going to look at this morning, and we're just going to take a minute to read these passages. I'm going to ask you, if you're able to, now remember I'm telling you we're going to read 23 verses, so if you're not able to stand for very long, I understand. Uh, but if you're able to stand while we read these verses, I'd appreciate it if you would, out of honor for the Lord's words. We're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll begin in verse 12, and as I said, I'll read all the way down to verse 34. Here's what the Lord's word has for us. Now Christ be preached that he rose from the dead. How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we also are found false witnesses. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. And if the dead rise not, then is Christ is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then... 
they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down, put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. And when he saith, when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage, what advantage it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness, and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Would you pray with me, please? We'll ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, I'm just going to ask you to, to help me to convey the truth of this word. I believe your Holy Spirit may even already be using what has been spoken uh, by reading your plain words to your people. But Lord, if you will see fit to use me in some small way, to help these people understand this passage, and more than understand it, to use it and to obey it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You all can be seated. seated. Um, it might not surprise you uh, that I didn't do a whole lot of dating before I got married. Um, don't be too, too, too terribly uh, shocked by that. Um, <laughs> Don't laugh too hard either, Brother Newman. Don't laugh too hard about that. Uh, but um, when I landed Vanessa, my current wife, not my, not my last one, but no, no. that's a joke. She's the only one I've got. Uh, when I landed Vanessa, um, and we were dating. I just about lost her the minute I, the minute I landed her. And you got to understand this about me. I grew up pretty uh, sheltered, I suppose might be the right word. My graduating class had three people in it, and I was valedictorian. <laughs> um, and so I got released to the mean streets of Bob Jones University. <laughs> and that's a big joke if you know anything about Bob Jones University, especially when I was in school about oh, a few years ago. Uh, it was pretty strict, pretty hardcore. But uh, when I was there, I, got, I had the French class, and I met a Midwestern girl in my French class. And uh, yeah, I was technically dating Vanessa at the time, uh, but Vanessa wasn't there. 
and I was a pretty big deal. So I thought, let me go ahead. I'm going to ask her to the, the movie night on campus. We're going to go sit and watch that movie together. And uh, of course, you know, as it does, word got back to my girlfriend at the time. He's out there gallivanting, doing that sort of thing. And I was informed pretty quickly of just exactly how tenuous my situation really was. And um, it wasn't the last time that I hurt Vanessa. It definitely was not the time that I learned all of my lessons about what I should be doing, should be doing in terms of treating the woman that thought enough of me to connect herself to me. It wasn't the last time. I, I think I finally got a little bit better, a little smarter on it, a little bit than I was. But it, it, it finally has kind of dawned on me that I got something special. Again, fellas, if you ain't got that figured out yet, you need to take a minute and think about it. If you've got somebody that actually even calls your name without spite in their voice, <laughs> you need to say, I got something special. Okay, let's just think about that for a second. So I, I finally figured I had something special, something that was worth putting my emotional weight and my full commitment behind. It was worth, and again, I, you could argue with you know, all kinds of things, but I finally had figured out that I had something that was worth me leaving other things behind and paying attention to. Are you with me on that? you understand what I'm getting at? I finally learned that I didn't have any hope of happiness outside of this woman. I finally learned that I would be completely defeated and destroyed on the dating scene if I did not put my weight behind this woman. I knew that I would lose everything of value. There have been times, even since then, because of arguments and other things that have gone on that, honestly, the thought crossed my mind, I could lose this woman. And it starts to hurt my feelings and it hurts my heart. To finally, I think the Lord has done that work in my heart to make me understand, I have come to believe in the radical reality that Vanessa loves me. And it's changed me forever. Now, y'all may sit there, well, I thought we were talking about Jesus. I we're talking about resurrection. I understand. I'm trying to give you an illustration of the thought that I want you to see. And I think it's the thought that Paul is trying to get these people to understand. He, he's trying to get them to grasp this idea. He wants them to believe. Uh, I do want to make sure we understand the terms here. When I say the word believe, he doesn't just want them to say, yeah, I agree with that. He wants them to actually lean in with all of their, their, their being on the hope of the resurrection, to know that there's nothing else that can help them and give them hope. That's what we say when you hear a preacher say, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't just mean that you say, yeah, I agree that there was a man that lived 2,000 years ago. We're saying, and the Bible is saying, you need to lean on him with all of your hope and weight, your trust, your look, you're looking to him as your only hope. That's what we mean when we say the word believe. So he's wanting them to believe, to lean in on the radical reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but dead people don't come back to life. That's just not what happens. As much as you might want, maybe you had a loved one that has passed, and you may look and say, I wish I could have him or her back in my life. And you might want that really bad, but let me just be honest. We all know dead people don't come back to life. That's why we mourn them, because they're gone, Right? So when we say that Jesus came back out of the grave, it's actually a pretty amazing thing. 
I know y'all have heard it, y'all, especially some of y'all been here for years. This pulpit, I guarantee you, every Easter Sunday, there's been somebody that stood here and proclaimed the gospel in which it says as major part, if not in, in significant part, it is a significant part of the gospel that Jesus came out of the grave. So you know it. And here's the problem with that. It's like, yep, he came out of the grave. Think about what I just said. A dead man, dead, gone, buried. He's out of the grave. That's a radical reality if true. And I will say, just like you, I don't believe that you, as I'm talking to the majority of this, this congregation, I don't believe, I'd be surprised if there was people in this congregation, especially members of this church, that said, I don't believe the gospel. I'd be surprised at that. It'd be shocking to me. I believe there would be to a person. You say, yes, I believe the gospel. I believe the Corinthian church believed the gospel. In fact, if you were to go to verses 1 and 2, I won't read them, but if you go back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, he even says, I believe you've received this gospel that we've preached to you. You've taken this in, but they're glossing over some details, just like we tend to do. Like, yeah, he rose, whatever. Moving on, next thing. Give me something deep, preacher. Give me something good. No, no hang on. What we just talked about is kind of a big deal. Let's don't forget that, and that's what he's telling them. He's saying, you need to see that there is no hope whatsoever apart from the resurrection. Right. There is no victory that will ever be had apart from the resurrection. And your purpose on this earth, you might as well just hang it up. There is no purpose apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes. So what I want you to do, and I'm, I'm taking my, my phrase here from, from verse 2 of, of chapter 15 where he says that I want to keep in memory, if you'll keep this in your memory, I want you to have this in your memory that Jesus has risen from the dead to, to meditate on that. If nothing else, you walk away from here for this afternoon as you go eat your ham or your, your turkey or whatever it is you've got for Sunday lunch, that you, when you go do that, you're thinking about this truth that you have hope, you have victory, and you have purpose because of the resurrection. I'm just going to take a few more minutes of your time to show you that from these passages. Just pay, pay attention to it with me. Uh, pay attention to this with me, please. Go to verse 14. He says, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain. He says, If the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, then Paul has been preaching to this church, which he clearly had preached to. He said, Everything I'm saying to you is actually not, it's useless, it's worthless. It's without any value whatsoever. And furthermore, because we already said in verses 1 and 2 that the church received what he preached, that their faith was in vain. He says that in the next verse, that their faith is in vain. He says, I preached foolishness, I preached uselessness, I preached emptiness, and you receiving it, you might as well just taken a handful of mud and, and slapped it on the top of your head. It was that useful. It was completely pointless. What is the purpose of it? Furthermore, if you go to verse 15, look what he says there. He says, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Now, I won't take the time to make you go back through each of the verses, but if you were to go back and look at verses 3 and 4, you will see that he says that Jesus was died, had died and was buried and rose again. He uses this phrase, according to the scriptures. What he is saying there is that the Old Testament actually gives testimony to the fact that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would be buried and would raise again. Now, let's be honest, it wasn't as clear as we'd all like it to be, but it's there. And that's what Paul was saying, is that the Old Testament spoke to, about these things. 
The point is that the Old Testament gave testimony that what Jesus did, rising from the dead, was true. Further, he says, after he rose from the dead, he gives a bunch of names there of people who actually saw eyewitnesses of Jesus coming out of the grave. The fact that he walked around after they saw him nailed to a cross, they saw him buried, they saw him then later walking among them knowing that he was there and alive. And they were giving testimony to that. And of course, Paul even says he was one of those testimonies. And he's saying, if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, we're all lying to you. We all, the Bible lied to you, those men that you heard from lied to you, and I'm lying to you right now. That's what he's saying. Right. And he's saying, if that's the point, then there's no, it's vain preaching. It is without purpose. It is without power. It is without a point. There's no reason to even listen to it. And furthermore, he says in verse 17, you're yet in your sins. You're still in sin. You know, all those promises that you go back to Romans chapter 6 and 7, where you are raised with Christ, and you have the power of Christ, the power of his resurrection, and you, you know, sin doesn't control you anymore. You have freedom from sin. That's all not true. You're still in your sin. You're still bound in bondage to sin. That's still, uh, still uh, got, got you in his grips. And then in verse 18, he says, and they... Also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. It's fallen asleep, a euphemism that the Bible uses sometimes. The Old Testament or the New Testament writers would use sometimes for those that are passed away, that have died. So, if you have a, law, a loved one that you have lost to death, and as much as that saddens you, I'm sure, especially if you're a Christian, you have the 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 the, the confidence, the the comfort that that person will be risen again. And you one day will be reunited with that mother, that father, that brother, that child. You're going to be able to be with that person because you know of the resurrection. But he says, if Jesus didn't come back from the grave, you can just hang that up. He says they're, they're perished. Uh, the, the concept of that word is like as if they were annihilated. Literally, they died and they're gone. They disappear. They no longer exist. How's that strike you? Let me just tell you, I don't like that real good. That makes me, that hurts my feelings. That upsets me because I can tell you I've had to counsel and console people who have lost loved ones. And the one thing I can hang my hat on is I can tell them, I know this hurts, but that person, if they're a Christian, they're in heaven right now. They are, as we say, in a better place. Right. But that is not true. I lied. You lied. We all lied to ourselves if Jesus is not right, risen again. Right. He's risen. He is risen, and because he is risen, we know that we're not in our sins. Because he's risen, we know that our loved ones are not annihilated. He says if he's not risen, verse 19, we are all men most miserable. That word miserable, you know how the English language kind of uh, changes and morphs over time, but that word miserable, it doesn't just mean that we feel bad. Because I'm, I feel miserable, if I say that, it means I feel bad, right? Oh, man, I'm miserable. This idea is the idea that I am pitiable. I am to be pitied. Somebody looks at me and said, man, that poor, sorry fella, he's got no hope. There's nothing that can help him. He is completely hopeless. He has nothing to look forward to. He is in a position, I've got sin, my loved ones are lost from me, uh, that Jesus is not real, everything that I've got my hopes on are gone. I am a pitiable person. I am most miserable, he says. But if we instead will receive, stand in, keep in memory 
the truth, the radical reality of the resurrection, that I have truth. What the Old Testament said, I can count on. What the eyewitnesses said, I can believe. What Paul preached, I can receive and I can accept. I have truth. I have forgiveness. I can stand here, not as a perfect person, but one who has had his sins forgiven because I can confidently say that Jesus did rise from the dead. I can say right. that. And I can have the hope that my, my family and my friends who have gone on before me are not lost, are not disappeared, are not just annihilated, but instead they are, if they are Christians, they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have the hope of, yes, I want to see my Savior, but man, it's not going to hurt to see Grandma too. That's not going to upset me one little bit to be able to see those, those people that I love and you loved as well. That is going to be wonderful. The problem is this church was getting their comfort, their hope, their help from so many other things. That's really what Paul's addressing in the first 14 chapters. They were looking for hope and truth and forgiveness in their favorite preachers. They were looking for it in the culture's endorsement. They were looking for it in how they might win an argument. They were looking for it in having perfect marriages. They were looking for it in getting their convictions just right. They were looking for it in having the best spiritual gifts. Every one of those things were things that Paul addressed with them because that was what they were focused on. They were following after. That became what was where their hope came from. But I need you all to see that you have no hope. I know it's a beautiful day and we're all dressed in our best and all those kind of things. But come on, you got no hope unless Jesus actually comes back out of the grave. And when we get the resurrection wrong, it's actually a damnable heresy. Right. Damnable to us because we now are in the position of trying to find hope in everything else. And there's no hope in any of it except right. for Jesus. Because Jesus lives, the good news is we do have hope. Amen. There is a bright future ahead. He says in verse 20, Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. I don't know about you, but I don't talk like this all that, that all that often. I don't really talk about first fruits all that often. But the Bible does make reference of it a lot. And often this idea of first fruits, there are first fruit offerings and things like that in the Old Testament. But the concept here is kind of, it's this idea of, of a farmer. He knows that when he plants some seed, he starts seeing some things start popping out of the ground. That's a promise that there's more where that came from. You see, if, if you look out there and there's nothing coming out of the ground... You have no hope that anything's coming out of the ground. But the minute you see some stuff start popping up, you start seeing that stalk of corn actually have an ear of corn on it, you know, hmm, we might actually get some corn this year. We might actually get something because there's the first fruits. That's what Jesus is. He is the first fruit. He's that initial crop that promises that there's more to come. So what I, why am I, why am I emphasizing? Well, why do I emphasize that? Because Jesus, in rising from the dead, is the first of so much more to come. He is the first fruit. He is the one that's come. Now, he does, just to help us understand this, he, ex he explains this by contrasting. By going in the, the next verse, in verse verse uh, 20, excuse me, verse 21, he says, For since by man came death, and by man came also the resurrection of the dead, for as it is in Adam all die. So, in a similar sense, Adam, the first man that ever lived on this planet that God created, that Adam was a first fruit as well. 
Unfortunately, he was the other kind of first fruit. He was the first one to be buried. He was created in Genesis chapter 1. But if you go to Genesis chapter 5 after the fall, you're going to find a whole uh, a list of people who lived, his children who lived, and there's a common refrain over and over and over. And he died. And he died. And he died. Because Adam was the first fruits of death. He was buried, and there was so much more where that came from. So much so that in Hebrews it actually says, it is appointed unto man once to die. We all have an appointment with death. Because of the first fruit of Adam. The good news is Jesus is the first fruit of the other way, the resurrection. I have something to look forward to because Jesus was the first to come out of the grave. His resurrection foreshadows life and victory. I know you know this verse over in Romans 6, verse 23, that yes, we know the wages of sin are death, but we also know that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have that resurrection hope. We have that because he has come out of, the, out of the grave. And if that's the case, he is a blessed hope because in verse 23, it says there that we're going to be part of this after they that are Christ at his coming. We, after they that are Christ at his coming. When Jesus comes back, we are all going to enjoy that following on fruits. That's not a Bible word. That's one I've just made up. But the follow on fruits of his first fruit. Right. We're going to get to enjoy the crop. We're going to get to enjoy that harvest that Jesus was the first fruit of. When he comes back, we have that blessed hope. And when he comes back, when that happens, yes, we get to enjoy it. But in verse 25, he says, when he must reign till all other enemies are put under his feet. Excuse me, I skipped over verse 24. I wanted to show you this. He says there that when he comes, that he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power. What Jesus is going to do when he comes back, he is going to establish what has already been the fact. It's never been in question, but some people on this planet don't completely agree with him on this. But he's going to go ahead and let him know. The Revelation says he's going to rule with a rod of iron. He's going to let everybody know he's in charge. He's going to say, once and for all, I am the one that runs this place. Every enemy, he says there in verse 24, talks about the people who want to be the rulers. We think we got a man who thinks he's the president. Well, we elected him to be the president, but that doesn't mean that he's the one in charge. We've got, we got dictators around the world who think they run their little countries. They think that, and they will for a moment, but the minute that God says, I'm done, they're going to be put in their place. They think they're rulers, but God is the ultimate ruler. Right. He even says in verse 25 that they will be, all of his enemies will be put under his feet. And I would say that if they're God's enemies, if you're the people of God, they're your enemies too. And those people that you would consider, rightly so, and I, hopefully I, you understand that there we, some, sometimes we can get in a, a bad state of mind about these things, but if our mind is right, righteous understanding of those that are against God's people, those people need to know that their time is limited. That yes, we don't have the right or the, or the responsibility to get revenge upon them, but our God will run this place. Our God will rule our enemies. Even to the point of death. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. I, I can't stop death. We all try to stop the process of death. We try to slow it down. We try to extend it as long as we can, but we all know it's coming. <laughs> 
one day or another, it's going to come at us. But there will be a day when Jesus comes back and he will establish his rule and even death has to say, I'm done. Because Jesus has conquered death. He literally will put everything under his feet, he says in verse 27. This will be God all in all, in verse 28, all in all. This is the world as God intended it. This is what God is going to establish on this earth. This is what God is actually, the, the revelation talks about a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we're going to enjoy when Jesus comes back and he establishes his reign. It's exactly what the, the world as he intended it. Here's the problem. If we don't understand the resurrection as Jesus taught it to us, as Jesus modeled it for us, as Paul is defending it here, if we don't understand the radical reality of the resurrection, there is no life, there is no victory. Evil runs rampant. Wickedness will flourish. Not just in our, in our time, but it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. If you have hope for your children, your grandchildren, your future generations, if there's any hope, it's got to be because Jesus has risen from the dead and he will establish his throne. Because if he didn't, you might as well just hang it up. It's done. You think it's bad now. It's going to get worse. I promise you, the Bible even promises that when it believes that Jesus, it teaches that Jesus is coming back. And it says it's just going to get worse and worse. And he's coming back. Can you imagine if he's not even coming back because he never rose from the dead? What, how bad it's going to get. Had a incident in my life recently. Won't bore you with the details from the pulpit right now, but I will, I will summarize it to say that there are some people that, if I'm honest, that I believe they have some just rewards, punishment coming to them. People who thought that they could get away with abuse, thought they could get away with abusing their authority and their circumstances and their situation doing it in the name of the Lord. And the flesh part of me wants to do mean things. Wants to do bad things. Wants to even say bad things right now, but I know better than do that. But the reality is, I have to be reminded that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And here's, here's the thing about it. That doesn't just... That sometimes say that, and I say it to myself, but Matthew, that's not for you to worry about. The Lord took care of it. It's not just that the Lord will, it's not just that, it's not, it's not just that it's not for me to take care of. It's the fact that the Lord will take care of it. It's the fact that those people who have hurt you, and I'm talking about legitimately, I'm not talking about they hurt your feelings and you just were being too sensitive. I'm talking about those, and there's some of y'all been really hurt by some real people that have some real bad things to you, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise. Those people need to be afraid, not of you, not of me, but the Lord is coming back one day, and he will take his vengeance. Do, do you understand what I'm trying to give you? You understand that that is not looked over, is not overlooked, excuse me, by our Lord. He sees it, he understands it, and he will address it. And if I don't have a risen Savior, then I might as well go out and do a little vigilante justice, because there ain't no justice in this world. Right. But my God is coming back to govern this place. Amen. He is going to give justice where justice is deserved. And he'll do it purer and cleaner than I'll ever do it. Yes. And I can count on that because Jesus has come back. 
we get the resurrection wrong, we're doomed to defeat, we're doomed to discouragement, we're doomed to depression because there's no hope. There's no victory. But because Jesus lives, there is victory. Bear with me for just a moment as I make one last point here. I want to get this across to you in these last few verses. I'll be brief. He transitions down verse 29. And I'll just summarize to say in verses 29, and uh, I believe it's, yeah, verse 29, he says there essentially, why in the world are we being baptized? That's what he's asking. And it's a confusing thing that he does there, talking about baptism of the dead, and people can debate that, and people do, I promise you, if you want to study it, they debate it, it's all over the place. Uh, but I think the point he does, what he's, what, he's, what he's trying to get across here is, if we're getting baptized for the dead, as our Mormon friends do, they baptize for the dead. If that's what they're doing, why are they doing that? There's no hope in that because Jesus didn't come back from the dead. The dead are annihilated. We already talked about that. Why, are, why is anybody, false religions, wrong doctrine, but why do it? it? And if instead, as we teach, that baptism is for our identity with Christ, why are you doing that? Jesus is dead too. Why are you identifying yourself with a dead man? And of course, as this church, they, they really thought a lot of baptism. You can see that in the first few chapters. Baptism was important to them. So maybe they were just doing it out of tradition. And I, don't, I can't imagine anybody ever doing anything out of tradition. Can you? Uh, but some of us do some things out of tradition, don't we? And he says, if that's why you're doing it, what's the point of that? He says, it's ultimately a foolish Practice if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Because, because you understand that when you pass through the waters of baptism, and part of it is, yes, you're saying, I've been buried with Christ, but I'm also saying I'm risen again with him. He's saying the symbolism, everything that goes on there, everything that you're connecting yourself to, you have just completely missed the boat if Jesus isn't risen from the dead. And all of, and I would say he's using baptism as a, as a symbol here of all of our religious practices. Why gather on Sunday? Why do any of these things? Why read your Bible? Why share the gospel? Why do any of it if Jesus is not risen from the dead? He even goes on in the next verse, verse 30, to say there that why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? In verse 31, he talks about the fact that he has been in, in danger of death. There are other passages in the Bible where Paul talks about all that he has been threatened with because of him preaching the gospel. Why would you put up with that? Then you say, well, Paul was a great man. He was a special man. He did some amazing things. So you might give him a pass, but I want you to understand that what Paul experienced, unfortunately, is not unusual. You say, well, I've never experienced that. Neither have I, and that ought to hurt our feelings real bad. Let me explain. Because 2 Peter, or excuse me, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Chapter 3 and verse 12 says that if we're godly, we will suffer persecution. He is saying to us, listen, if you're going to follow after Jesus and the resurrected Christ, they're necessary. By the way, did I tell you that dead people don't come out of the grave? So at the very least, they're going to say you're an idiot for believing that a dead man came out of the grave 2,000 years ago and you're still worshiping him. What is wrong with you people? You understand that, right? Because if people are thinking people, that's what they're going to say. In fact, some thinking people do say that because they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And he says, if you're going to do that, if you're going to face that ridicule, you're going to face the persecution, if you're going to do that, why bother? He even says, go to verse 32. What advantage does it me if 
dead rise not. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He says, why bother? Just give up. Do what feels good. Can, can, I, just, can I just bring this point to you? Please, please listen to what I'm saying here. Too many people actually do that. They have this attitude. I'm talking about church folk. I don't know your lives personally well enough to know if this is y'all. You just have to take it or, or ignore it. It's up to you. But this is what church people do. They'll say, I believe in the resurrection, but live as if the resurrection is not true. He's saying there's no reason to follow after Jesus if all you're going to get is persecution, especially if it ain't true. Why bother? Why bother? He says in verse 33 that evil communications, bad belief corrupts good manners. Bad belief leads to bad practices. So what we have to realize is we have to wake up to the reality of the resurrection. He goes on to say there are wake to righteousness and sin not. Lean in on the revolutionary reality that is the bodily resurrection. It will, it should, Christian, if you really think about it, meditate on it, spend some time with it, it should wake you up from the stupor that this culture tries to lull us to sleep into and to say, ah, just do what feels good. Eat, drink, and be happy because tomorrow you're going to be annihilated. It's going to just all disappear. Don't worry about it. It's something called nihilism that people buy into. That nothing matters. Just what I can feel, what I can see, what I can touch. And too many believers, at least in name if not in heart, at least in name, many believers operate on this same principle. We need to wake up. It's time to wake up. It's time to repent of our sins and realize that our life has so much bigger purpose. You're more than life's pleasures. You're more than vain religion. Because he lives, we have heaven to look forward to. Because he lives, my sins are forgiven. Because he lives, I'll be reunited with loved ones one day. Because he lives, I will enjoy eternal life without pain, without tears, without suffering, without separation. I have that to look forward to. Because he lives, I can rest assured that every wrong that's ever been done will be righted, will be fixed, will be revenged against. Because he lives, our worship services have purpose. Because he lives, the gospel matters to real people. My baptism actually because he lives, the suffering that I endure as I walk this world in obedience to Christ has meaning. Do you believe that? Remember what I said when I said the word believe? What do I mean by believe? I mean lean in on it, trusting it. It's all that matters. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Do you believe that he lives? Are you really depending on your on his bodily resurrection for your hope, for your victory? For your purpose. You may say, if you're honest with yourself, say, no, I'm, I'm not believing that. Well, you can believe today. You can. Jesus is offering himself to you today. By the preaching of his word, by even the word itself, he has preserved it for us so that we will know who he is. Have it in our hands. Many of you have a copy in your laps that you can look to. Why? Because the Savior is offering himself to you. He is offering himself to you that you can believe. So I want to make sure you have that invitation very plainly 
I'm going to turn it over to your pastor in just a moment, but I want you to know that you have an invitation. However he handles it, it'll be up to him. But I want you to know that invitation stands. I can guarantee you, I don't, I don't know it that well, but I guarantee you come up to him, whether it's during the service, after the service, you call him this afternoon, he'll help you. If he won't help you, call me. If I won't help you, there's somebody in this church that will. I guarantee you there will be people that will help you. You come to the faith, come to faith in Christ. He wants to save you. He wants you to believe in his resurrection so that you can have that hope, so that you can have that victory, so that you absolutely can have that purpose. Now, Christian, same invitation goes for you. You say, well, I've already believed. And I'm going to say, amen, praise the Lord. But do you believe and keep it in your memory? I'm encouraging you to take what you've heard today, some of the thoughts that maybe something stuck with you. There's one thing that stuck with you. Keep that in your memory. Take a moment. During this time of, I'm sure there'll be prayer, there may be music, whatever ends up happening, just take a moment and just think about the Lord's blessing of his resurrection and say, thank you, Jesus. He's given you something amazing. It's time to worship him for it. Why don't we do that?